0: Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio Podcasts. This podcast is focused on targeted radiotherapy and the impact on I.O. from the 2022 Immuno-Oncology 360 Summit. For more information about the Immuno-Oncology 360 Summit, our editorial, podcasts, and webinars, please visit io360summit.com. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. All
1: right, good afternoon, everybody. Um, I'm hoping you're going to enjoy this uh, conversation when we did our prep um, a couple weeks ago. We had a lot of good discussions on, you know, this crossroads between immuno-oncology and, uh, and radiotherapies. So we're going to kick it off. I think um, OHAD actually brought up a good point when we were discussing this. You know, a lot of the radiotherapy, context that we learn from is from external beam. And now with some systemic radiotherapies coming online, especially Jeff, you know, with the uh, Novartis product, PSMA um, 617, there's kind of an interesting dynamic here now at this crossroads between systemic radiotherapies and immuno-oncology. So the one topic that came up in this article that we were um, given by OHAD was the estimated dose um, of radiation to immune cells and how that affects overall survival. So just want to kick it off, maybe, Ohad, if you want to give a quick little primer on that, because some of this, like I said, was originated in the external beam radiation context and therapies, and how might that translate into what we see with now systemic radiotherapy?
2: So if you want to... Great, so, the, um, so to start with the traditional radiotherapy that everybody is sort of aware of is the one where patients come in, there's a plan based on CT or MRI, they get two grays per day, it's a very short procedure, and it's five days per week. And they come over several weeks, they get a certain amount of dose to the tumors, and basically they walk away. There's no residual radioactivity within the patients. Um, and people have always assumed that more dose is usually better. Um, the more dose you can get on the tumor, the more response that you can get down the line. Um, And, of course, you're irradiating a single tumor, but eventually people saw that in a very small percent of the cases, you can get what's called an abscopal effect, where lesions that were outside of the radiation field are responding and shrinking. Um, But another thing that people have seen is that in some of the cases, uh, even when there is no irradiation of lymph nodes or uh, the spleen, for example, so in... Uh, head tumors or in breast tumors where uh, you can really uh, plan irradiation uh, beforehand to not irradiate uh, any of the organs that have immune cells in them, you do get some kind of uh, lymphodepletion. And the authors of uh, there's about three or four papers that came out, uh, were really interested in why this is happening. And their assumption was that even though you're not irradiating, irradiating these major lymphatic organs, then the T cells that are circulating in the blood are getting a portion of the radiation, uh, and that's affecting uh, their ability to then, down the line, react to all kinds of cytokines and uh, uh, immune-modulating responses from the tumors. Uh, they called it EDRIC or EDIC. It's the estimated dose to immune cells, the circulating immune cells. And they actually were able to find that uh, if they had, they taken a population of patients in one of the studies. It was uh, lung cancer, and they tried to quantify that dose to blood, and it's the blood in the uh, in the heart, the blood in the lungs. They were all a part of the irradiated field. They can show they can put them in four quartiles of how much dose to the normal to the normal blood. Therefore, the circulating T cells, uh, they could do and the results were pretty astonishing. The patients who had gotten under five grays, the lowest quadrant uh, in these patient populations, had an overall survival of about 26 months, while the ones that had gotten the most dose to these immune cells, to the circulating immune cells, had a response of about 14 months. Um, And again, just a small group of papers, but very interesting results.
1: Yeah, so I guess the question then, is this something that can be translated to systemic radiotherapies? So when you have like an intense field just focused on a certain area, you know, that's one type of setting. But when you're doing, you know, let's say PSMA-617, how does that affect, you know, downstream, you know, immune responses? So, Jeff, any thoughts on that?
3: Yeah, no. um, Thank you guys for the introduction and the opportunity to join this esteemed panel today. And, I think that's probably the first way to start thinking about the difference between traditional, you know, radiation radiotherapy versus radioligand therapy, right? We often think local, localized disease, local therapy with EBRT, but now we're talking about a systemic therapy where you could deliver high-dose radiation very precisely to a cancer cell based on the antigen expression, um, so, in principle, right, you could definitely control where the, the radiation is going, assuming that the tumor to tissue ratio is, is quite good and ultimately your ligand is, is stable. I think the second aspect of this is what does it do not just to the cancer cells, but potentially cells surrounding that? And I think that's where the choice of radioisotope becomes important. There are certain radioisotopes that have a very precise, you know, focal you know, restricted length versus others give you a bit more breath in terms of their length. But then you could ultimately have a bystander effect to cells that are surrounding the, the cancer cells specifically. The last point I would make is it's still a fairly new and emergent field. And I think it does require a lot more characterization as to what radioligand therapy does to immune cells, the tumor microenvironment, I think we have some very strong preclinical data, some emerging evidence from our clinical samples. But I think it's an area where I look forward to to leveraging this group and the experts around the world to better understand this and the potential combinability to really get a, you know, sort of more tumors pro-immunogenic.
1: And that's a good segue. Then I guess, so Charles, when we were talking about this again, like Jeff said, with regard to... Different types of isotopes. So, if we're looking at an alpha emitter versus a beta emitter, I mean, do we envision any type of difference in you know the effect aside from the the kill path or that um, that length?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, You know, I I think we just don't know. Uh, There haven't been any studies uh, at scale to compare alpha versus beta uh, emitters um, in this context. So, I think you know the jury's out. I think also. Um, if you look at some of the indications, um, they're not necessarily li- li- to prostate cancer and others. They might not be some that naturally would be, um, uh, let's say, uh, amenable for immunotherapy readily. Um, and so it could be that just we, we haven't had a chance to really evaluate. Um, I'm not aware of folks who are developing both um, alpha and beta simultaneously, but I think it's only a matter of time until, and, and, until that happens, right, as this, as this field grows. So I think we'll, we'll get the data Uh, Eventually, um, but to my knowledge, you know, there really isn't um, an an understanding as to which might be more, you know, uh, say, synergistic with immunotherapy.
2: Mm -hmm. Oh, how it look like you're shaking your head
1: that Curie has Um, both?
2: (laughs) Yeah, so I I think a lot of the theranostic companies are focusing on either alpha or beta. Some are starting to, like Novartis, are starting to look at alpha therapies as well. Um, But a lot of them are focusing on the alpha therapies. If you think of the uh, different particles, a uh, beta particle is like a car crashing into the side of a building. An alpha particle is more like a truck hitting full speed into the building, head-on. Um, so alpha particles, basically, they travel very short distances, and they deliver a lot of energy. Uh, but the decay is very complicated. Uh, so you get a parent isotope, and then you get a lot of daughter isotopes that can cause damage, and most of them that can cause damage, and it's, that's a little less predictable. With beta therapies, they deliver less energy, but things when you try to understand the dose to the nearby tissues, you get a lot more predictable information. Um, and again, as as they said, as we said before, the there isn't a lot of head-to-head comparison to try to understand what's going on. Uh, but at least at Kiri, we feel that there is a lot of very persuasive information already around beta therapy, and we would like to extend that to alpha therapies as well to see how the two correlate uh, in combinations with immuno-oncology agents.
1: And then Matt, any thoughts to add to this? Just to make sure you're included on on all that.
4: (laughs) (laughs) On the alpha, not necessarily, but I I think what's really interesting, and Simon and and Ron touched on on this, about the, it's an interesting, um, advantage and disadvantage that you will have a, a radiotherapy that's targeted, that it, it's really um, interesting that you could also image that target at the same time. So the complexity of understanding target expression coupled then with the therapeutic and then trying to understand tumor, tumor microenvironment and the, the influence on, uh, on the immune cells Uh, There's a a, a huge opportunity for imaging to better characterize the system uh, prior to therapy, uh, but then also to track during therapy. So it's going to lend itself to a, a lot of optimization over time to understand what that right sequence of events will be.
3: Maybe I could just build upon what Matt says, and maybe my first thought as we enter into this field, I probably should have paid more attention in chemistry to the periodic table so that I understood more of these elements and the advantages and disadvantages. But what Matt was saying was really important, and I think it's another area where the radioligand therapy is truly differentiated than traditional radiotherapy. And I think this is where the use of the imaging agents, you know, that are coupled Right, with the chelator to the exact same moiety becomes very important. Whether it's F18, whether it's gallium, you ultimately are treating what you see, and you're just replacing out the radioisotope. So you really can sort of take this phenotypic precision medicine approach with cancers, and prostate cancer may not be the best one because the antigen is expressed almost near you know, 80, 90, 100% on the cancer cells. But as we start to talk about different targets and different antigens, you're unlikely to get that 80 90% expression, which is really where I think the, the radioisotope imaging becomes absolutely critical to define the patients who are most likely to benefit.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. Um, and then maybe pivoting on to some of the combination type of therapies, because uh, there's been a lot of data that's been published, you know, or at least presented like at ASCO-GU and other forum where they would look at PD-1, or I mean checkpoint inhibitor um, combinations with radioligand therapy. And based on what we were just talking about as far as some of the exposure and how that might have a deleterious effect, you know, on overall survival, how does that, you know, factor in as far as combinations with immune checkpoint inhibitors and and things like that? I mean, you know, any thoughts on radioligand therapy and at least the biological, you know, I guess rationale for those combinations?
3: I'm happy to start, and obviously these combinations are sort of still early in their, in their infancy, right? And I don't think we should compare the traditional, you know, EBRT or, or more, f- more focal radiation kind of to the current, um, current trials. And I think as Ohad nicely put, we were relying heavily on an episcopal effect in some of those earlier trials, and it may or may not have panned out as we could have hypothesized based on preclinical data. I think some of the trials that are ongoing, you know, in the clinic right now, there's a trial called Prince, which is actually combining um, lutetium-based PSMA six one seven with pembrolizumab. It's very combinable in terms of safety and tolerability. The early efficacy data looks encouraging, and I think more work needs to be done to characterize the immunomodulatory approach. Another experiment that's just getting off the way is in uh, frontline small-cell lung cancer, which is actually taking an approach to, care, to combine uh, cisplatin atopicide plus radioligand therapy, you know, plus anti pd one pdl one based therapy. So another opportunity to see if you could really increase the DNA damage, produce neoantigens, and really enable a more durable effect, you know, for the anti-PD-1-based molecule. Um, so again, these are quite early in its infancy, and I think a lot more work needs to be done in the space.
2: And there, has, there have been, I think, four studies that I've, I've uh, tracked over time and read on. Uh, one of them had a combination of EBRT with a PD-1 uh, targeted agent that showed really good results that when you added the PD-1 agent, then you got uh, more significant progression-free survival. Um, and there were three that, that some of them were in, uh, I think the first one that had good results was non-small cell lung carcinoma, but there was an RCC and a head and neck cancer uh, studies that didn't show as good of a result. Um, I think one thing that's a difference between radiotherapy and your standard of care uh, combination therapy is that usually we try to get to MTD with all of the agents that we can. Uh, We'll scale down one of them and try to bring it up. Um, With radioactivity, the as we mentioned, the effects on the immune cells, the effect in the tumor, around the tumor, is slightly different. Um, I think what was common to some of these studies was that they added the PD-1 agent to a full-scale EBRT uh, conditioning. So there wasn't any attempt to have a couple of arms that maybe some got the maximum uh, radiation and then others got lower amounts of radiation, maybe Uh, different strategies instead of giving uh, daily rations, maybe giving a huge ration once a week or something of the sort. Um, So the results were sort of on and off, but I think as we drill down a little more deeper into how we try to understand the effects of radiotherapy on the immune system, I think the potential will unravel uh, to its full potential. And another
1: question, then, would be, again, since we're at the IO360 conference, the emergence of some of these bispecific T-cell engagers. um, You know, there's a lot of companies that are doing that, not just my own. Um, But as far as combinations with, you know, radioligand therapy, for example, if you're looking for orthogonal mechanisms of action, you know, to target different diseases, you know, what are your thoughts on that um, with regard to the influence that might have based on the way we kicked off this? this panel discussion, where that could be a deleterious combination, or, you know, does it seem like that could be effective?
3: Yeah, Yeah, I I think, Mike, um, you know, starting with what you said, right, I think the emphasis is around safety and tolerability, right? Are these drugs combinable, and is there an overlapping safety profile that would preclude, you know, being able to conduct the experiment to give them concurrently or even sequentially I think the other aspect, right, to consider is obviously half-lives of the radiation and then half-lives of the corresponding molecule, because that also ultimately may also guide your, your treatment schedule. When I look at our experience thus far, and I'll just use PSMA 617. I think overall the safety is is quite quite manageable and quite tolerable. You know, in terms of overall toxicity, they're approaching grade three percent or grade uh, sorry thirty percent general constitutional symptoms, you know, around nausea, uh, some weight loss, some fatigue. But overall, I think the major challenge has become around kind of the myelosuppression, you know, because some of these RLTs, the antigens tend to either be expressed in the bone marrow or the radiation can sort of aggregate in the bone marrow. So I think that becomes an important factor as you think about combinations with cytotoxics, ADCs, and depending on the specific bites or T-cell engagers, that would be one thing to factor in. The other point is obviously how the drug is cleared, right? And I think for at least the radioligands that we're working on, you know, the kidney is the predominant, you know, organ of of clearing these molecules. So you do have to be conscious of, um, you know, sort of any, any overt kidney failure, ultimately any aggregate tox that could emerge from, uh, you know, accumulation in the kidney.
2: And
3: if I can add to that, then
2: a lot of the times people come and ask us do you think that doctors will give a systemic radiotherapy after the patients had already gotten a localized external beam radiotherapy? And it's one thing that we need to sort of remind them that with external beam, it's really if it's a lung lesion, then the lungs, the heart will get some dose. But if it's a systemic therapy, and if it's, we'll take for example, the PSMA agent, then all the organs will get some exposure. But most of the organs will be the kidneys, the bladder, where the agent is excreted through. So it's really a separation of the normal organs that are getting most of the dose. So there shouldn't be an inhibition of using uh, systemic radiotherapy after uh, external beam. And the second thing to to mention, it's less IO related, it's more uh, DDR related, but a lot of the times these combinations... Uh, Again, same kind of worry. How can you give a systemic radiotherapy that's going to affect the marrow if you're giving a PARP inhibitor, for example, that's going to affect the marrow as well? Uh, But it's really interesting that once you drill down into some of these toxicities, we get the radiation toxicities and the uh, normal uh, therapeutic toxicities on different lineages of cells. And oftentimes, we get the toxicities at different uh, times uh, post-exposure. So you will give a systemic radiotherapy and then a PARP inhibitor maybe a week after or before and so forth. So the timeline until toxicities appear is different for the two therapies.
1: Yeah, and I guess since you brought it up not to go down the radiotherapy rabbit hole, but, you know, there is a study at MSKCC where they are doing kind of a a repeat of the STOMP trial, where they're doing SBRT plus or minus PSMA-617. So that's actually happening concurrently. So any thoughts on on that, since you brought up sequential or or otherwise? So um, there are explorations looking at, you know, combining the two.
2: Just in a very high level, I know of another study, I think, that's using a lutetium agent with uh, brain cancer, uh, together with EBRT as well. Uh, There are questions, there's definitely questions around the two different radiation types and then the brain tissue surrounding the tumor, how they're going to get affected. The easy answer is that it's challenging. Um, if you look at the minimal regulatory requirements from the FDA, they're kind of low level. It's basically calculate dose to normal brain from one to and, and the other, and then amass them both in this number that's what the whole brain is getting. The more complicated answer, and I think Matt will be able to speak about it in more depth, is that you can do a volumetric type analysis. The EBRT is going to mostly affect the brain surrounding the tumor. Uh, While the uh, systemic uh, exposure will be different, it'll have different exposures on different portions of the brain, um, and it's a lot more challenging to calculate it.
4: Uh, You're referring more to voxel-based dosimetry assessment? Yeah. So I think that, uh, to Ohad's point, and I think this speaks well to imaging in general and the spatial visualization that we get is, you know, rather than treating organs, you know, just in mass, but really looking at at voxel levels, understanding that there's a a complexity of tissues. We saw necrosis. We saw, you know, all sorts of features, Um, and then being able to look at the dosimetry uh, regionally within lesion and in healthy tissues is, is really important. So there's a lot of emerging technology on the imaging side that's going to assist in the characterization of these uh, new drugs and the combinations.
3: Yeah, and it, It's fundamentally one of the most important and first steps in radioligand therapy, right? I mean, getting thorough dosimetry you know, studies and images, really understanding you know where and how the drug is distributed and metabolized, uh, so critically important. The other thing that I'll mention, and, and not to make this a talk about safety because we're at an I.O. conference, but we've talked a lot about the acute short-term on-treatment toxicity. What's also important is the long-term effects you know, of these as well. So for most of our trials, we're doing long-term safety outcomes out to at least five years or as long as the patients are are alive, just looking to make sure that we're not provoking, you know, sort of transformations into AML or increasing the risk of myelodysplastic syndrome because of the bone marrow effects. So these become important as we think about the long-term implications of some of these novel therapies.
1: Yeah. And then, Charles, to bring you back in, I guess, um, with regard to, you know, exploring biomarkers when we're looking at the crossroads of IO with, with radiotherapy, are there any that kind of stand out that, you know, you're trying to look for? You know, when you're combining these things, or even just looking at, I guess, the modulating effect that, that radiotherapy has.
0: Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think if, if you have an um, uh, an imaging analog, right, where you use beforehand, like let's say zirconium labeled analog or otherwise, where you could ascertain biodistribution, um, you, know, you could then look to see are there features of tumors with high uptake, right, that um, that, that that might be predictive in the sense of um, of, of uh, let's say, whether vascular access or some other you know, perfusion, something else that makes those tumors particularly amenable, mm-hmm. um, you know, perhaps then you could uh, evaluate uh, a patient population and say, well, hey, we have a, we're enriched now for patients who present that type of tumor that we think are, are, are suitable for, um, for radiotherapy. And that's one thing that comes to mind. I think also you know, for each of these mechanisms, you know, the, the, this ultimate cell death can be distinct right, whether it's from an immune synapse from a T cell, whether it's from double strand break, and then, you know, the, the, the cell essentially committing suicide at that point, you know, it could be that a large mass undergoing that, that, that um, choreographed, coherent cell death might present itself in a way that's, that's different in an image um, uh, than, than, you know, the, from one uh, approach to another. So, you know, I think it would be worthwhile to, to look at uh, a study where you have responses from radiotherapy and say, okay, well, is there anything distinct about that dying tumor, uh, mm-hmm. that, that shrinking mass uh, from an image standpoint that, that's different from, from let's say chemotherapy or from, or from, uh, from you know, an IO therapy? Mm-hmm. Um, that'd be one idea for, for biomarker, yeah.
4: It, maybe not uh, you know, talking about an individual biomarker itself, but I think that, that we've talked about a lot of complexity of deploying imaging of this type. Um, and so I think that in the, the value proposition of imaging and understanding an individual lesion is something that you can really leverage early on in the uh, classification of, of, of disease and the response to therapy. And ultimately, a facilitator, I think it was pointed out in at least two of the talks, a facilitator of other biomarkers. So sure, something that you find in the blood is systemic. It's not the lesion itself, but is far more deployable. Uh, than something like a complicated imaging paradigm. It's not something that you could introduce into, you know, standard practice for treatment. So imaging provides really a a fantastic opportunity to understand at great depth during clinical development, during clinical trials and research um, that allow you to validate, you know, more deployable uh, biomarkers in the long run.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, like with, you know, the presentation we saw earlier, some of the dynamic, you know, imaging and seeing that, you know, I, I think is a great way you can kind of see that life cycle of the cell and, and, and visualize it to see are there patterns that, you know, could predict some other outcome or help with combination choices and things like that. Yeah.
3: Um, we have five minutes
1: left. Should we? Get,
3: maybe get I'll, I'll just end. add, I think any any non-invasive approach to fully characterize how these agents are working would be critical, right, from imaging to the blood-based markers, at the same time, right, we also need to be cognizant around making sure that we get tissue to really understand the tumor microenvironment and what's going on with, you know, the influx or efflux of cells. And I would argue, as we think about the different choice of radioisotopes, a neoadjuvant-type approach could be quite good, where you can at least get two doses in before, you know, full surgical resection, where then you get a large tissue, high-quality mass to be able to fully characterize what this is doing, so... That might be another approach that we try to leverage a little more to better, to better understand how these drugs can work collectively with, uh, with immunotherapies.
1: Yeah, totally agree. I mean, again, another plug for a uh, previous company, Endocyte, uh, spinoff of that was on target. There's a recent approval, you know, doing exactly what you're talking about, kind of a fluorescence imaging to guide uh, some of the resection you're talking about.
0: Okay. A
4: question from the audience, actually. Sandy Mong with Curie Therapeutics, colleague of OHAD's up there. Um, you guys have spoken a little bit about this idea that target density and expression can be different um, and lead to a different kind of outcome for radio ligand therapies. Can you comment a little bit about how you guys think choice of modality, targeting modality might be different than in some of the other conjugated, conjugate forms of therapy like ADCs or bytes or CAR-Ts and where you think radio ligands are quite, are different in that aspect?
1: I can maybe speak a little bit from, again, um, some of the experience we had at Endocyte comparing the folate target versus the PSMA target, just looking at the imaging. And, Ron, you know, you probably saw some of that. I mean, the folate targeting as far as the receptor density and things like that, the resolution of those images was horrible, you know. But if you took a PSMA spec agent, for example, and you compared that to a MIP for a pet agent, you wouldn't be able to tell them apart. So the target itself does make a huge difference. You know, that's just anecdotally what we can tell from the two different folate versus PSMA. Anybody else have any examples like that? Does that answer your question? Nope, or right, do you have a follow-up?
4: Uh, it's. I think that's part of the question. It's actually choice of the kind of portion of the target going after. I think the other aspect of the question is choice of targeting modality, so antibody, peptide, small molecule, and so on, sort of what you've learned from different forays in the clinic from what the liabilities or advantages of each are?
1: Um, Well, one of the things, and Jeff, you could probably talk to this too as far as PSMA 617, you know, let's just do a comparison of that with J591. You know, you've got an antibody versus a small molecule. So, you know, one of the things you can think about with that would be related to the, you know, biological half-life, right? The circulation time of a PSMA 617 is very short, so you have quick clearance. So you can think about as far as any off-target effects or something like that where you don't have to worry about that. It's cleared quickly. With an ADC, it's in circulation for a long time, so you can have, you know, the unfortunate reality of sometimes the, you know, the warhead comes off, whether it's a cytotoxic or a radio you know, nuclide, and you can have issues that just exist because it's in circulation for so long. So those are some of the things to think about when you're comparing small molecule um, modalities versus an ADC type of modality. I don't know if, Jeff, you want to add? Yeah,
3: I I would fully echo that. I mean, we've prioritized small molecules and peptide-based ligands, you know, over antibodies because of the half-life, right? You want, you know, long residence time, retention time in the tumor, but in the circulation, you want to clear it as quick as possible. So for those reasons, we've tended to go, you know, more with a small molecule, low molecular weight, peptide-based inhibitors.
2: No, I fully agree. I think that especially with targets where um, you want deep penetration of your molecules into the tumor, I think the peptides, the small molecules, they do a better job in order to get a homogenous coverage of the of the tumors themselves. The antibodies, although you can get more radioactivity into the tumor eventually, a lot of that radioactivity is going to be very near the blood vessels, the angiogenic blood vessels. And just like we mentioned, then the antibodies are going to circulate for a long time and unlike an ADC they don't need the drug conjugate to disassociate from the antibody to cause damage if the is in the bloodstream it's going to decay over time and cause damage so the smaller molecules which are quick in quick out they're not going to expose the blood and the bone marrow to a lot of dose uh, because they're just going to clear before they start to decay yeah and then I guess just a to- finish off, we're talking about the targeting
1: part, the, you know, I guess the the vector, and then the radionuclide itself, so not all radionuclides are the same. You know, when you think of a beta emitter, iodine-131 is not lutetium-177, so you have to think about those as well, Um, you know, when you think of the different possible side effects. Any other questions? We have 30 seconds. Matt, you want to give a... (laughs) All right. Thank you, everyone, on the panel. Appreciate the discussion.
0: We hope you enjoyed the podcast. For more information about the Amino Oncology 360 Summit, our editorial, podcasts, and webinars, please visit io360summit.com. Thank you.